First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you open them with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Again, this morning we are kicking off our Christmas series called Christmas Lights. And, uh, you know, last weekend after uh, all the turkey had been consumed, uh, my sons and I did what I'm sure many of you did. We got up in the attic and uh, started pulling down those uh, tubs and boxes of Christmas decorations, our Christmas tree. And uh, this uh, particular year I had a uh, a friend of our a family, my buddy Kevin, came over, helped me put up the Christmas lights on the outside of our of our house. And uh, now we we don't go crazy with it. We have like one one string of lights on on the roof line of our house, and uh, a nativity uh, out in the yard that's uh, lit up. And uh, we're definitely not going to be winning the uh, FPC Mel light fight or anything like that. Uh, but but even with a little bit of decorating that we do. I don't know about you, but every time I get up on that ladder and I'm putting up those lights on the side of the house, I think, is this really worth it? (laughs) Because I pretty much have to get back up this ladder in like 17 minutes to take these down, right? I mean, they're only up for a month, unless you're that guy that leaves them up year-round, and I don't don't really want to be that guy, right? And so I think, you know, is this worth it? Uh, And yet every year I think that, and every year I still, you know, put them up. And and I have to be honest, I I do just, I, I love, once they're up and that job is done, I do love in the month of December, you know, pulling into our neighborhood, pulling up uh, into our driveway, seeing those lights on the house, seeing that uh, nativity out in the yard, Uh, driving around with my kids, as again, I'm sure many of you do, and looking at Christmas lights on uh, other folks' uh, houses, and uh, pretty much everybody loves Christmas lights. And in this series, we're going to be talking about the real Christmas light, the light that every one of those lights on our houses and Every one of those lights on our Christmas trees is intended to point our attention to the light of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who was born for us. And so every week in December and right on up to Christmas Eve itself, uh, we're going to be looking at different passages in the Bible that speak about how Jesus is our real Christmas light. Uh, We're starting off today by looking at one of the most familiar Christmas passages in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Look at those words with me as I read. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian." For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You pray with me. Father God, we thank you today for this child, this son that has been given to us that first Christmas time. Father, we pray today that you would help us to see the glory and the beauty of Christ. Help us to trust in you. Father, would you open your word to us, Father, by your Spirit's power? Or would you speak to each and every one of our hearts today? We ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. As we look at these beautiful words today that were spoken so long ago, I want us to think about three questions that I believe this passage answers for us. And the first question is this, why is Christmas like a light shining in the darkness? Uh, The title of the message today talks about that, Christmas light shining in the darkness. But what do light and darkness have to do with Christmas in the first place? Well, this passage speaks to that. Isaiah was written over 700 years before the time of Christ. Uh, It was written at a time when things were not going well for uh, the people of God. Uh, In fact, if you'll just glance back one chapter before this, in uh, chapter 8 of Isaiah, and, and even just read the heading of that chapter. Your heading probably reads something like mine. It says, Assyria will invade the land. And that doesn't sound too encouraging, but that is what is about to happen. Chapter 8 is a prophecy about a disaster, an impending disaster that God was about to bring upon his people Israel because of their sin, because of their stubborn refusal to listen to his word or any of the prophets that he sent them. God was going to discipline them. He was going to allow the Assyrian Empire under a man named Tiglath-Pileser III, to come in and take Israel over and carry away people captive. And now we can look back in our history books and we can see that that, in fact, did happen. Shortly after Isaiah wrote these words, Assyria came in 734 B.C. and they came again in 732 B.C. and finished the job. And so if you look at verse 22 of chapter 8, the last verse of that chapter, God describes what it was going to be like for his people once Assyria came in and conquered them. It says, Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Not not a happy time at all. Trouble, gloom, darkness. According to Isaiah, God's people were about to be in the dark. But then in chapter 9, Isaiah gives them a prophecy of hope. He tells them that even though they are in the dark now, that one day God is going to do something, or more precisely, God is going to send someone who is going to turn the light on for his people. And then we come to verse uh, 1 of chapter 9, and we see what he says in this prophecy of hope. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And in other words, you're you're in a gloomy time now, but that gloom will not remain. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. 
by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness, that's where they were walking now in a time of darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Notice also in verse 1, he doesn't just refer to Israel generally, the whole nation, but instead he refers specifically to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now if you remember, the nation of Israel was divided into 12 tribes. And when they moved into the promised land, each of those 12 tribes received an inheritance. They received a specific allotment of land, a territory that belonged to them where uh, those who were part of that tribe, generally speaking, lived. And Zebulun and Naphtali were two of those tribes. Their territory was located up in the northern part of the nation of Israel. One of the reasons why he mentions this territory specifically is this was the first region where the Assyrian army marched through as they came into Israel and conquered the land. This was the first part of the country that would experience the disaster and the gloom and the darkness that was about to fall on all of Israel. But Isaiah also says to these people who are living in this particular territory, yes, you're the first to experience this disaster but you're also going to be the first to see a glorious light. I want us to look at a couple of maps just for a second to get our bearing. I heard last week Aaron said one of his seminary professors said he should always show a map. So I'm trying to fall in line with that also here today. But So if you will look up uh, here, you'll see two maps actually on the screen. The one that's on the left side uh, shows the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament days. And if you look up at the northern part, right around that little body of water, the Sea of Galilee, you'll see just to the west of that, uh, the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. They're right there, right around the Sea of Galilee. Then if you look to the map that's on the right-hand side of the screen, this is Israel in the time of Christ. So we're looking at the same piece of land. Now, of course, they're conquered by the Romans, and the Romans have divided the land into several regions. And if you look up around that, uh, that Sea of Galilee, you see that it has a name, and it's referred to as Galilee. Well, that was one of the names that that region had during the days of Isaiah. He refers uh, to Galilee of the Gentiles in this ancient prophecy. And now in the first century, at the time of Christ, it is referred to by that name of Galilee. And I want you to notice, if you compare those two maps, that the tribe of Naphtali, the tribe of Zebulun, and the land of Galilee is the same place. That this territory is called Galilee at the time of Christ. Now, why does any of that matter at all for us? Because the most important person who ever lived, the one who was born in Bethlehem that first Christmas, spent almost all of his life, all of his years growing up in Nazareth, which was a part of Galilee, and all of his ministry, the majority of his ministry, was spent in that little 50-mile-long by 25-mile-wide section of land called Galilee. And in the New Testament in Matthew 4, Matthew refers back to this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, and tells us that it was fulfilled the day Jesus Christ walked along the seashore by the Sea of Galilee. Well, look at these words with me from Matthew chapter 4. Matthew writes, And leaving Nazareth, his hometown, 
Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of where? Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes from our text. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, before Jesus came on the scene, the region of Galilee was really every bit as dark as it was in Isaiah's day. It was a region that was ethnically diverse, an area where a lot of Gentiles lived. It was an area that was looked down upon uh, by those who lived to the south in Jerusalem and in Judea. Uh, The folks who lived in Galilee were those who were lightly esteemed. They were despised. All the descriptions that Isaiah gave 700 years before this still applied to the way people viewed those who lived in Galilee during Jesus' day. And yet, this is the place that in God's sovereignty he chooses for the light of the world to dawn. It was into that darkness that the light of the world walked. As he walked along the Sea of Galilee and he called out to two fishermen and said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You know, while Jesus did do some miracles in other places, think about how much of his ministry happened right here around the Sea of Galilee. It was here at the Sea of Galilee, again, that he called his disciples. It was here at the Sea of Galilee that he fed the 5,000 with the five, two fish and the five loaves. This is where, by the Sea of Galilee, he preached the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus calmed the storm with just a word. This is where Jesus walked on top of the water right across the sea. This is where it all happened. And These Galileans saw the glory of God, the light of the world, on display right in front of them. Just like Isaiah said would happen 700 years before, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Christmas light had come into the world, and he walked right into their neighborhood. And again, you might say, okay, well, that's, that's cool. Jesus ministered in Galilee, and Isaiah said that he would 700 years earlier, so it fulfilled that prophecy. But, but again, what does that have to do with me, with us? We're not living in Galilee. We're living in Melbourne, Florida. But here's the thing. We said that until Jesus came to Galilee, the people there were living in darkness. They were living in the shadow of death. And in reality, that's still true today for every one of us until we come to know Christ in a personal way. Here here is the truth, and really this is the main idea of this message this morning. All people, people then and people now, are sitting in darkness until the light of Jesus shines on them. Until the light of Jesus shines in our hearts, until we come to believe in that light that first came at Christmas time, the Bible says we are sitting in darkness. 
And that is true for every one of our friends and neighbors and family members who do not yet know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Whether they know it or not, whether we typically view them in this way or not, this is a spiritual reality. People without Christ are in the dark. I'm sure that everyone in this room at some point or another has, has gone to see a, a movie at the theater uh, in, in the middle of the day. And it's an interesting experience. You go into this dark room and you're in this dark movie theater for two hours or so. And then if you don't stop by the bathroom or you don't give yourself a minute for your eyes to adjust, if you walk out after being in that dark room for two hours and you open up the doors of the movie theater and you walk right out into the sunshine... The sun is so bright that you have to blink your eyes, right? And you're shielding your eyes. It's, it's, it's almost hard to take it in. It's blindingly bright. And you didn't realize how dark the room was that you were in until the sunshine hits your eyes. That, that's what happens whenever anybody in this world comes to know Jesus in a personal way. They walk out of the darkness and into the light. And whether they're eight years old or they're 80 years old, when that happens, it's only then that they realize, that we all realize, how dark it really was in our souls before the light of Christmas began to shine. Again, I'm not sure that we always think about those in our life who don't know Christ in those terms, but Christian, it doesn't matter if your friend is successful in the world's eyes, if They don't know Christ. They're still in the dark. It doesn't matter whether they're well regarded by others. It doesn't matter whether they have a great job. It doesn't matter whether they live in a big house. It doesn't matter whether by every conceivable measure that person is viewed in the world as a successful person. If they don't know Jesus Christ spiritually, they're in the dark. The light of the world has come. But friend, has the light of the world come to you? As the light of the world come to your friend, to the one whose name is on your heart right now, the light has shone in Galilee, but has the light shone on Greg? The light has shone in Naphtali, but has it shone on Natalie? The light has shone in Zebulun, but has it shone in the heart of Zach? And we need to pray for those in our life who don't know Jesus. We need to pray that the light of Jesus would shine on them. And we need to ask God also to give us opportunities to share that light with those who are living in darkness. And one of those opportunities that God gives us is simply just to invite people uh, to come when we know there's opportunities where they're going to hear the good news of Jesus. The Christmas concert these last several days is one of those opportunities. There's one more this afternoon. I heard about one, a wonderful woman in our church who uh, invited six of her uh, neighbors to come to the Christmas concert this past weekend. Uh, To her knowledge, none of the six of them are regularly a part of any church at all. And much to her surprise, all six of them said yes. And all six of them this past weekend came to the Christmas concert here and heard the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, Christmas Eve coming up in just a couple weeks is another opportunity to invite a friend, invite a neighbor, a family member. Come, spend an hour with us on Christmas Eve where you know they're going to hear the gospel. 
Let's pray for those opportunities. Let's take advantage of those opportunities to share the light of Christ with those around us. Friend, if you do know the Lord, would you just take a second even now in your spirit and just thank him? Thank him that the light has shined on you. Here's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4. Look at these words. It says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful verse. If you're in the light right now, Christian, remember that it's not because you're smarter than anybody else. It's because God in his goodness and graciousness shown his light inside of your dark soul and mine. And we have been able to see the light of the beauty and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's thank him for that. We've looked at the first question. Why is Christmas like a light shining in the dark? Now let's look at question number two. What happens when Christmas light shines on us? Well, back in chapter 9, Isaiah describes what happens in verses 3 through 5. Look at those verses with me. He says, You've multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for the fire. Isaiah is talking about a time in the future after the great light of the Messiah had come, uh, after the child has come that he's about to speak about in verse 6. And he's really speaking about something that actually the final fulfillment of this was not just in the future for Isaiah. The final fulfillment of these words is really still in the future for us. If you look at verse 5 when he speaks about the ending of all wars where boots and bloody clothing that were used in the battle can be thrown into the fire because they are not needed anymore. Uh, We know that the cessation of all war, right, as we look around the world today, uh, that is not yet a present reality. That is still something that is awaiting us in the future, but we know that when the Savior comes the second time, that he will bring peace on the earth. And that is something that should encourage our hearts as we look ahead to that day. And so while we know that ultimately what verses 3 through 5 speaks about is still in the future for us, there is a sense in which we do still experience the beginnings of the blessings that he speaks about in these, these verses when we come to know Jesus in a personal way. Specifically, there's three blessings that the Christmas light brings to every believer that's spoken of in these verses. First off, the blessing of joy. The blessing of joy. If you look at verse 3, there are no less than four references to joy in that verse. He says, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Clearly, there is joy in the blessing of knowing this deliverer, this Savior who will be, will, was born for us. And uh, this joy uh, should be ours if we know Jesus Christ. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, rejoice always. Again, I say, rejoice. We sang the song, Joy to the World. And we have every reason as followers of Jesus Christ to have joy because of all that Christ has done for us. 
And, and church family, you know, this is one of the things that really should mark us as Christians. E- even during this busy holiday season, the joy that we have because we know Jesus. Right? Let other people get into fistfights over whether or not they get the 70-inch TV on Black Friday. Right? Because we know that our joy as Christians is not found in getting that super great deal. Our joy as Christians is not found in having the best decorations. Our joy as Christians at Christmas time is not found because we get off our Christmas cards at the right time and we don't forget anybody on our list, right? Our joy as Christians does not come because of a flawlessly executed Christmas season. Our joy as Christians comes because we know Christ, that Christmas is all about. And joy should fill our hearts because of our relationship that we have with him. This child who was born for us. Jesus, our Christmas light, gives us joy. But he also gives us freedom. Gives us freedom. That's what verse 4 is all about. When he says you've broken the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Now when he refers to the days of Midian, he is referring to the story of Gideon that we read about in Judges 6 and Judges 7, where the Lord delivered his people, even though they were up against an army that far outnumbered them, and he gave them the victory. And so here he's speaking about the victory that the Lord will one day give his children over all of their enemies. But we also know that we have spiritual enemies as well. Before we came to know Jesus Christ, we were under the bondage, under the yoke of some enemies that had a hold and a grip over our life. The enemies of sin, the enemies of death, the enemies of Satan that had their clutches on us. And there was nothing we could do to break that yoke off of our shoulders, but our Savior came and broke that yoke for us. And he has set us free. The burden is gone. The yoke is gone. The chains are gone. And if you know Christ, you have freedom in Christ. And that is something to celebrate this Christmas. He gives us joy. He gives us freedom. He also gives us the blessing of peace. Again, verse 5 speaks about a worldwide peace that will one day come. But The Bible also teaches us that when we come to know God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have a peace with God that we've never had before. Friend, if you don't have that peace today, you can. You can have a peace with God that will never be taken away. And before this message is over, I want to give you an opportunity to find that peace with God, which is what all of our souls are longing to have. These are a few of the blessings that come into our life when we come to know the one who is Christmas light. We find the blessing of joy and peace and freedom. That's what happens when Christmas light shines on us. But here's the third and final question we're going to look at uh, this morning. It's a question that by now we should already know the answer to, but who is this Christmas light? Who is this Christmas light? Of course we know that this light is Jesus the one who walked in Galilee, the one who fulfilled the promise that Isaiah made up in verses 1 and 2. He is the Christmas light who came into the world and who shone on us. But with the few minutes that we have left, I want us to look at these last couple of verses of our text, verses 6 and 7. Probably the most familiar words in this passage. 
And I want us to look at these names of Jesus, the names of our Christmas light that are given to us here. And look at those beautiful words again. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Here's the assurance. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Wow. As you look at these words, everything that Isaiah has written so far, all this talk of deliverance and victory and peace, all of this is going to come. Because of this child that he speaks about in verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Isn't it amazing that the plan of God for the world centers on the birth of a baby? This is the mysterious, marvelous plan of our God. That the advent, the entrance of a little baby into the world is the very focal point of God's plan of salvation. And he told us about this 700 years before it happened. In fact, two chapters before this, in Isaiah chapter 7, we read the prophecy of how the virgin will give birth. And they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And two chapters later, here in Isaiah chapter 9, now he's taking that name Emmanuel, and he's expanding it. He's, He's showing us more of who this Emmanuel will be. Some of his attributes, some of his characteristics. And he gives us four beautiful names for our Savior that I want us to look at very quickly each in turn. First off, Isaiah says the one who is our Christmas light is also our wonderful counselor. Our wonderful counselor. Now when Isaiah says that Jesus is our wonderful counselor, he doesn't mean that he's you know, like Dr. Phil, but just a little bit better. That's not what he means. By, by the word counselor, he's referring to wisdom. Specifically, the kind of wisdom that is needed to make wise plans. Jesus would be wonderfully wise, but Jesus also would be at the very center of God's wise plan to save us. Everybody doesn't see it that way, of course. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says some people look at Jesus, they look at what Jesus did on the cross, and it's a stumbling block to them. It's It looks silly. It looks like utter nonsense to them because they do not see it. Paul says that's because they're perishing. It's because they're in the dark. Paul says those who are being saved, to those who are in the light, Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God. He is a wonderful counselor. Friend, is he a wonderful counselor to you? Isaiah says our Christmas light is a wonderful counselor. Then he says he's also the mighty God. The mighty God. That's a remarkable name for Jesus. And and by the way, this name for, for Jesus rules out some of the other interpretations of this passage where people will say that this referred to an earthly king like Hezekiah or someone else. No, only Jesus could be referred to as a mighty God. In fact, one chapter later in Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah uses that same phrase, mighty God, and uses it to refer to God the Father. Jesus Christ here, our Savior, is called mighty God because, of course, he is the mighty God. As John said in the beginning of his gospel, he is the word made flesh who dwelt among us. 
Jesus is the mighty God through whom all things were made that were made. Jesus is the mighty God who right now is holding up the universe at this moment. Jesus is the mighty God who that day on the Sea of Galilee spoke the word, peace be still, and the waves and the wind listened to his voice. He's the mighty God who after his death on the cross came bursting out of the tomb on the third day. He is the mighty God. Isaiah's prophecy is about a little child, but don't let the small packaging fool you. He may have only been seven pounds at the time of his birth, but he was and is now the mighty God. As the carol says, Jesus was Lord at his birth. Thirdly, Isaiah says that our Christmas light is also our everlasting Father. This is also a name that doesn't apply to any human earthly king. No king is an everlasting king except for this child. He is mighty God and he is an everlasting, eternal Father. Now when Isaiah refers to Jesus, to the Son of the Father, as the everlasting Father, he isn't confusing the members of the Trinity. Of course we know that in one sense Jesus isn't the Father. He's the Son of the Father. But what Isaiah is saying is that Jesus is like a father to us. That Jesus comes to us as a father does. He protects us. He provides for us. He is merciful to us. He comes and shows compassion to us. He is fatherly in the way that he cares for us. And so we know that if we're a part of the family of God, Jesus will forever be our elder brother in the family through whom we have been adopted into this family. But we also know that he will forever be fatherly in the way that he loves and cares for us. And then one final name that Isaiah gives, Jesus is our Prince of Peace. Our Prince of Peace. And I said earlier that in this context, Isaiah is certainly referring to the manner in which Jesus' rule and reign will one day bring peace on earth. The kind of peace that every Miss America contestant says they want to see. And we need to remember that that world peace is only going to come when one person returns. And that is Jesus. And again, we need to remember that we all need to find peace with God. And it can only be found through this Prince of Peace. And we have to enter into that relationship individually and personally by faith. You know, in verse 6, the word us is a really important word. When it says there, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The word us is a really important word, isn't it? Uh, I remember uh, over 10 years ago, the night that our first uh, child, our son Silas, was born, uh, my wife Megan and I were living up in North Carolina uh, in our uh, seminary apartment there. And uh, that night, uh, things began moving, as they say, and we knew that we needed to get to uh, the hospital very quickly. I was a first-time dad, and so I was super nervous. The bag had been packed for some time. And uh, we ran out to the car, and I did not want to be like those folks you see in the movies, right, that have to deliver the baby in the back seat. I was like, that is not happening. We are getting to this hospital. And so I was in a hurry, and we were driving down the road, and Megan always makes fun of me because I called up our doctor, as they told us to do, when we were on the way to the hospital. And I said, we're coming. We're on the way to the airport right now. We're going to be there any minute. And he said, whoa, whoa, airport. Why are you going to the airport? Go, go to the hospital. That's where I'll be. 
And so uh, we made it there. We got there, and uh, we got there about 7 or 8 o'clock at night. And uh, it took a few hours, but by 4, 4.30 the next morning, Silas was born. You know, there were probably dozens of babies born that night at that one hospital alone. There were dozens of babies born the night before, dozens of babies born the night after. But there was only one baby that was born to us. A child has been born. A son has been given. But has he been born to you? Has he come into your life? Because if he hasn't come into your life, according to this passage, you're still in the dark. But the Christmas light is shining. And all we need to do is open up our heart by faith and receive that light into our life. I want to ask you to stand as we sing together. And I just want to invite you. If you're here today and God has been speaking to your heart, and you know right now, I, I'm not sure if I have peace with God. I'm not sure whether I'm in the light or in the dark, but I want to be in the light. I want to have that child born to me. I, I want to know that I'm a, a part of the family of God. I want to be forgiven. If that's you, I want to invite you right now. As we sing, as we worship the Lord, as soon as we begin to sing, I'm going to invite you to come and speak with me. I'll be right here at the floor. And I'm inviting some of our other pastors to be here at the head of each of these aisles. And we would love to pray with you right now about however God is speaking to your heart. You come right now.